This week on the show, we show you some useless use of GNU. Uh, we meet the 2021 FreeBSD GSOC students a little, the historical notes on the Unix portability, VM86-based VNix emulator by Warner Losh, ZFS mysteriously eating CPUs, Traceroute gets speed boosts, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 421, ZFS Eats CPU, recorded on the 8th of September 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this episode. Uh, we as moderators at uh, JT in the background prepared this nice episode for you with cool and fresh BSD content in a very nice condensed way and an hour you get the latest news from us starting with headlines useless use of gnu yeah uh, so this is an article from julio marino who says the gnu project is the source of unix user land utilities used in most unix or linux distributions uh, it's compatible with standards or sorry it's compatibility with standards and other unix systems or lack thereof directly impacts the overall portability of any piece of software developed from gnu linux installations Given that GNU Linux has triumphed, in scare quotes, uh, over pretty much every other Unix-like system, it is likely that you are developing from a GNU slash Linux type system. And it is also likely that you have little or no exposure to any other Unix systems. That said, the other Unix systems still exist, uh, and they do not carry the GNU user lane with them. MacOS is a prominent example as it comes from the BSD core and various BSDs are still around and kicking. Unfortunately, the GNU user land does not closely adhere to standards. Even its own design guidelines explicitly ex uh, encourage disregarding the standards. <laughs> More so, if you look at the manual page or info documents on most GNU tools, we won't see any mention as to which standards they conform to. For example, the GNU core utils manual uh, contains 91 instances of the word POSIX, but skimming through the text reveals that they are, uh, are to call it little incompatibilities uh, or implementation choices. Compare this to the arbitrary man page from a BSD system, such as LS from FreeBSD 13, which has a standard section that says, with the exceptions of the options dash G, N, and O, the US utility conforms to IEEE standard 1003.1-2001, POSIX.1, and uh, 2008, uh, which is also POSIX. The options uh, capital B, D, G, I, etc., uh, are non-standard extensions. The ACL support is compatible with the POSIX 2.C draft 17 standard. Uh, and then in the bug section, it does say that uh, POSIX 2 uh, mandates opposite sort orders for files with the same timestamp, when sorting with the dash T option. So it explicitly says where FreeBSD's LS uh, might deviate from a standard. Mm -hmm. In the FreeBSD case, uh, you are always aware of which behaviors are standard and which are not because the vast majority of the manual page is carrying those notes. It is important because you can then make informed decisions on whether you want to write software that is or isn't standards compliant, or at the very least, have this kind of information in your face all the time and make you aware 
that portability is still a real struggle even in 2001. Which brings us to the real problem with the GNU user land. GNU tools contain many incompatible extensions over many other traditional Unix systems. We can classify these into two groups. The first is usability extensions. These are extensions that are meant to improve the interactive experience of the system. Um, these can actually be very useful, such as ls-color, and are perfectly fine extensions as long as they are restricted to interactive usage alone. You wouldn't want ls to suddenly include the colors when you're piping it into a shell and trying to do something with it. But there are also gratuitous incompatibilities. These are little differences here and there like the equal equal operator in the test program on Linux that creep up in scripts and documents and that have the unintended, or maybe not, consequence of making programs GNU specific for no good reason. It is the latter kind, the gratuitous incompatibilities, that are truly problematic because they are a source of vendor lock-in, intentional or not. And because of GNU Linux's uh, prominence, you are likely to be using these extensions already without knowing it and they can and will cause you problems down the road. In this post, I present the GNU-specific gratuitous incompatibilities that plague programs, uh, especially shell scripts, and the ways they can easy, uh, easily be avoided. The goal of this post is to help identify these pitfalls and write more portable software. So he talks a bit about command line differences, the biggest one being the way GetOps works in GNU. So, uh, according to the Unix standard and the way BSD works, when you provide flags for a command, like say ls, all the flags must come before any of the parameter arguments. Mm. So, if you want a long listing, that's ls-l, and then if you want to list specific files, foostar goes at the end. But the GNU version allows you to do ls-foo-l. Uh, putting a parameter at the end. Mm. Whereas in the BSD ones, as soon as you have something that isn't a flag, that doesn't start with a dash, uh, that's where you're onto the list of files and everything after it is also a file. Uh, and this helps avoid problems where you might have a file that has a dash in the name and it being misinterpreted as being an extra flag and causing unintended consequences. Yep. Uh, yeah, that one has caught me out before where like, even ZFS commands in some of the documentation somewhere uh, that were updated for Linux will say, oh, just do this and put the flag at the end. I'm like, no, that won't work. It's not how I'm supposed to do this. Yeah, it's unusual. Yes, and it's just <laughs> the opposite of the way I learned how this stuff is supposed to work. Uh -huh. And so uh, uh, Julio writes uh, each individual once um, sections about this. Um, yeah, like fascisms, the equal equal operator, um, the double square bracket extensions, the function keyword, um, set-o pipe fail, which I think exists on FreeBSD now, but um, you know isn't technically standard. Uh, one has caught me out many times is echo-e, which then allows you to use things like slash n and so on in your echo statement. Oh, yes. Uh, that doesn't work that way in most shells, and you should use the printf command instead, which does actually support those. Yeah. Um, or Linux allows you to do find without specifying a directory, whereas the standard version of find says you have to specify where you want to search. Oh. Uh, and then even problems with GNU make and a bunch of other interesting things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good comparison. And Julio has uh, some other nice uh, posts on his uh, blog that you are also 
free to read and there's usually good ones i, I remember the one uh, about always be quitting very fondly did we cover this in this in the show yeah we covered that yeah. uh i it was an episode i hosted so it was either a month ago or two months ago yeah right yeah now that i see the uh, points he makes again i i remember yeah yeah that's good all right, next up, we have Meet the 2021 FreeBSD Google Summer of Code students on the FreeBSD Foundation's blog. And we could do this in a question and answer thing because that's an interview style. That's how they introduce right, so students. I will, uh, I will do the questions this time. Okay, then I'll mix it up a bit. <laughs> impersonate the students here. <laughs> At least provide the answer. Right, so first, you're going to impersonate Christos. Okay, yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, where you are in your education journey. So Christos answers, I'm a 20-year-old computer engineering student from Greece, and I just finished my second year. Have you ever worked with Google Summer of Code before? No. Why did you choose FreeBSD? I'm interested in operating systems, and FreeBSD is the main OS I use and the project I was already contributing to. Also, my project is something I was planning on working on anyway, so I thought it was a good chance to both work on something I'm truly interested in and for an organization I care about. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your Google Summer of Code project. Uh, it's an attempt to improve the OSS sound mixer on FreeBSD. I'm writing a mixer library, completely rewriting mixer, and also updating the sound kernel module with new mixer ioctals. The goal is to provide both programmers and end users with better tools for manipulating the sound mixer. As you probably know, FreeBSD isn't quite known for its audio utilities, but we'll get there. Find out more in the link that I provided in the wiki. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, FreeBSD's sound system may not be very popular, but it is one of the lowest latency ones, so it's very good. It is good. Yeah. Uh, and then next question was, what are you hoping to learn from your experience with Google Summer of Code? First of all, how to work with other people in a more professional way. Where up until now, uh, now I've only worked on my own. As far as the technical aspect is concerned, I have a special interest for sound programming since I'm a uh, musician as well. So I really hope I get better at it. Oh, good. And lastly, how has working with the FreeBSD project been so far? Great. Communication is clear and the environment is friendly and relaxed. Oh, nice. Then uh, there's another student, Khaled Emara. I read the questions now. Uh, <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are in your education journey. Uh, so Khalid uh, says they're from Egypt. I'm a rising senior in the Faculty of Engineering uh, at Ayn Shams University, pursuing a Bachelor in Computer Engineering. Have you ever worked with Google Summer of Code before? Uh, previously with the X.org Foundation uh, in Google Summer of Code 2019. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to work with FreeBSD? I've been trying to do a project related to operating systems for a while. So when the program uh, began, I started looking for organizations in this category. I found a few interesting projects in FreeBSD and then talked to the mentors about them and got pulled in. <laughs> Please tell us a little bit about your Google Summer of Code project. So XFS uh, was a popular file system created back at Silicon Graphics in 1993. It had a few interesting ideas for its time, which made it fast and performant. It was made uh, for the SGI IRIX OS, but soon enough, IRIX died and XFS got ported to the Linux kernel, where it has been living and maintained ever since. This project aims to make a port of XFS that runs in userland, not the kernel, to the use kernel or fuse kernel interface and run on FreeBSD. A file system uh, is Unix-like OS uh, program that translates blocks uh, 
from the storage device to a tree-like structure of folders and files. What are you hoping to learn from this experience? To learn about file systems, to learn about the Rust programming language, to learn more about open source and the pipeline and how uh, the project works, uh, get to know FreeBSD and hopefully contribute to the project even after Google Summer of Code, and to learn more about testing file systems in Rust and to learn about the Fuse interface. Uh, how has working with the FreeBSD project been so far? It's been great, honestly. My mentors are very helpful and I'm involved in the project's decision-making. The project has been coming on uh, nicely. I think I've achieved most of what I came here to do and still have lots to cover in the remaining period. Oh, very nice. That's nice motivations we read here and a lot of common things to uh, both students uh, for now, uh, learning about the project and you know, getting a little bit uh, interaction with the project itself, from aside from the technical parts. Uh, then we have Simran Kapalia. You do the questions again. Yep. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are in your educational journey. Uh, I'm a second year university student pursuing a Bachelor of Techs, Technology in Electronics and Computer Engineering at Amrita Vishwa, here we go, Vidya Pitam, India. Hope that's correct. Sorry. Uh, I'm also part of a cybersecurity team at the university where I do reverse engineering while playing uh, Capture the Flags. Have you ever worked on a Google Summer of Code before? No, it's my first time participating in GSOC and also my first time contributing to open source. So why did you want to work on FreeBSD? I wanted to work on a, or to do a project related to security. More specifically, I was interested to learn about fuzzers and how they work. So I looked for projects in this category and happened to come across FreeBSD project on Syscaller. I looked into Syscaller a bit and was intrigued to learn more. And then I focused on it solely. Uh, tell us a little bit about your GSOC project. The aim of the project is to enhance the existing state of Syscaller support in FreeBSD. Syscaller is a crucial tool that has found many bugs for FreeBSD in the past. Syscaller support can be improved in a number of ways. A few of the subtasks I'm focusing on in my project to generate more bugs are adding FreeBSD system calls and device drivers manually and then automating it, uh, fuzzing of FreeBSD's Linux system call compatibility layer, and improving fuzzing for subsystems like USB traffic. Finally, patching syscaller reported bugs. And what are you hoping to learn from your experience? I hope to learn about different syscalls and device drivers in FreeBSD, get a deeper knowledge of working with syscaller, and be able to debug and patch kernel-related bugs. And then lastly, how is working with the FreeBSD project been so far? Working with FreeBSD has been great so far. I have already learned a great deal working on this project. My mentor is very helpful and communicative. I have been able to generate some bugs from the syscalls and device drivers, which I have added to syscaller. Also, since it's my first time contributing to open source, it's a very pleasant feeling being part of such a large community, already working towards the same goal in which I am to able, uh, which I too am able to contribute in little ways. Great. Just great. That's that reflects many of the things that uh, when we talk at or talked at conferences that some of the people there, a lot of them have the same motivations and started off this way. And yeah, it could be your open source career start. So yeah, thanks for Google Summer of Code for having us as a project yet again. And good luck to the students uh, for their projects. And thanks for the mentors who are also mentoring the students. Uh, that's also involving a lot of work and it's appreciated that you're doing this. Time for news roundup this week. Uh, we have large Unix programs were historically not all that portable between Unixes by Chris Seibelman on his blog. Yeah, uh, so he starts off and he says, I was recently reading Ruben, Sh uh, 
Shad's blog, I'm not sure that Unix actually won, uh, and had a number of reactions to it. Uh, one of them is that the about the portability of programs among Unixes, uh, which is one of the issues that Shahad uh, sees as a problem today. Unfortunately, I have bad news for people who are yearning for the good old days. Uh, the reality is that significant Unix programs have never been really portable between Unix variants. And if something today, uh, or sorry, if anything today is at an all-time high for program portability by default between Unixes. Back in the days, in the late 80s and early 90s specifically, one of the things that Larry Wall was justly famous for was his large, intricate, and comprehensive uh, configure script that made RN and Perl build on pretty much any Unix or Unix-like system that you could name. Wall's approach of configure scripts was generalized and broadened and became GNU AutoConf and GNU AutoTools and so on. These tools did not automatically make your complex programs portable between different Unixes, they, uh, but they gave you the tools that you could use to sort out how to achieve that and to automatically detect various things you need to do to adapt to the local Unix that you're running on. And if you use some of them, you automatically get pointed to the right include directory and the right libraries to link with. People did not create and use all these tools because they wanted a complex build system or to write lots of extra obscure uh, configure scripts. They used these systems because they had to because there were all sorts of variations between Unix systems at the time. Some of these variations were uh, in where programs were installed and what their capabilities were. You know, the POSIX compatible born shell wasn't always slash bin slash sh, for example. Others were in what functions were available, what include files you used to get access to those functions, and what libraries you had to link against. And you ask the audience, you know, hands up to uh, anyone who had to add dash l socket or dash l resolve to their compiled command on some version of Unix to get hostname resolution to work or to make an IP connection. Uh, you might hope that POSIX would have made all of this obsolete in old Unixes. Uh, not so. First, not all Unixes were fully POSIX uh, compatible in the first place. Some only added partial POSIX compatibility over time. I'm not sure any were real POSIX compatibility happened very fast. Second, even when Unixes such as Solaris had a POSIX compatibility layer, they didn't necessarily make it the default. You could have to go out of your way to get POSIX compatible utilities, functions, include files, and libraries. And finally, not everything that uh, a substantial Unix program wanted to use was actually covered by POSIX uh, or free of issues in the POSIX implementations. All of this incompatibility was encouraged by the commercial Unix vendors because it was uh, you know, in their cold-blooded self-interest to get people to make their current program hard to build and run across Solaris, IRIX, HPUX, OSF, One, etc. The more of a pain it would be to move to another vendor's Unix, the less chance that the vendor would steal your customers from you by offering them a cheaper Unix. In a related development, Unix vendors spent a long time uh, invoking the specter of backwards compatibility as a reason for never changing their system to make them more POSIX compatible by default. Uh, or to modernize their command line tools and so on. The situation with modern open source Unixes is much better. They are mostly POSIX compatible by default, and Unixes have converged on a relatively standard set of include files, standard library functions, and so on. There are variations between Unixes, including differences in libc implementations, even on Linux. You know, you can have uh, GNU libc versus Musil and so on. And between current and older releases, 
but for the most part, the differences are much smaller today to the degree that a lot of the work GNU AutoConf does by default feels quaint and time-wasting. You know, where there are major differences, they tend to be in areas related to system management and system level concerns instead of user level C programs. PS, Unix programs tended to be uh, much more portable between the same Unix on different architectures, but relatively few old Unix vendors ever had such an environment, especially for long. And let us not talk about the move from 32-bit to 64-bit environments or the issues that was known at the time as all the worlds at VAX and experienced as people began to move uh, to Sun and so on from their different uh, things and dealing with different Indianesses and so on. Uh, if you want to read the original uh, article he was referring to from Ruben Schade's blog, uh, we have that in our show notes as well. Um, but we move on just to keep the uh, show going and you can read the, the points he was referring to. Uh, next, we have um, news from Warner Losh, always busy working this time on the VM86 based VNIX emulator. So he writes uh, a new path VM86 based VNIX emulator. Uh, it's been a while since I've had time to work on the VNIX emulator. When I set it aside over a year ago, I'd taken it as far as I could with the 8088 emulator I'd found online. I had no frame. Pointer emulation, I guess. Floating point. Floating point, yeah. Uh, I didn't I think of that. <laughs> Floating point emulation, and there were a number of things misbehaving that I couldn't quite get right. And exec was proving hard to implement. Despite being written in C++, the original emulator resisted my efforts to make multiple instantiations. So I set it aside last May, thinking I might get back to it when the QMU BSD user changes FreeBSD has done have been upstreamed. 1st of August, I took some time off from work and got the BSD user changes in shape to upstream. This is what developers do to, you know, take some time off from work and work on other stuff <laughs> coding related. Um, yeah, this is just water. This is amazing. Um, continuing. Well, the first 10% of the changes that were the hardest since it was replacing that was there with something that minimally worked. This helped me learn QMU's x86 CPU much better, and it got me thinking that QMU's user mode stuff might be the way to go. About this time, I also found a VM86 test program in the FreeBSD tree. So I got to wondering, could I do a VM86 implementation of VNIX? So I stole the bulk of my old 86 sim-based VNIX implementation, installed a i386 VM using Beehive on my FreeBSD AMD64 box, and wrote a little test program. Test program worked, so in a fit of why not give this a try, I ported the pcvnix.cc from 86 sim to being driven from 6xv uh, in VM86 mode. Hello world quickly worked. <laughs> Excellent. Then he talks about uh, entering VM86 uh, VM Venix. So he, uh, I reworked fork on exec and the A outloader a bit. I was able to get the C compiler working on this new setup. The CC command is just a fancy script that strings together the preprocessor, compiler, optimizer, assembler, and the linker. Except on Venix, it hasn't a shell script I could hack to run natively on FreeBSD. It was this weird binary that did all the forking, execing, redirecting, etc. in line. More on that in a minute. So VM86 mode is a special mode in 32-bit CPUs that lets you execute old 16-bit code in the context of a normal process. Super easy to set up, but often of limited use. Uh, then he talks about uh, some of the things that the i386 ELF designers thought ahead. Um, some starting addresses for ELF binaries and uh, them being about 4 megabytes. 
And so uh, memory mapping there is important because of the low memory. And uh, FreeBSD has a security stop on mapping everything at location zero. However, but the rest of the first four megabyte is available. So Warner wrote a loader, because why not, uh, that would load the old Venix A.out binaries into this space. Or rather, he hacked the loader he already had to do the mapping and was able to reuse all the loader code from the X on the 86 sim based emulator he had before. <laughs> then he shamelessly stole the setup code from the FreeBSD VM86 testing binary, which was little more than establishing signal handlers and zeroing the context and setting up a stack and IP as well as the segment registers. With that in hand, he was able to use SigReturn to set the processor flags such that it would jump to where he wanted to go in the VNIX binary. And uh, so this goes uh, <laughs> on and on. This is just amazing to see that uh, a single person could, could do this and has all the, the bits in place. So I would definitely recommend you read the full article. And uh, Warner concludes with, uh, it helps uh, to read the manual carefully, it turns out. Uh, I need to try to build the system. There's a shell script to do that, that don't depend on environment variables working if run natively. So he'll see if they work and see how much of the system he can generate via this route. Stay tuned. My to-do list still contains getting env working. I don't think it's hard, but I think I need to filter things because my default env is larger than the stack on these old x86 machines. And he also needs to look at rebasing my emulator as asterisk slash user QMU emulator, even if they don't take it upstream, maybe even uh, add PC slash IX and VX, uh, Xenix slash 86 support as well as uh, that other researchers can play around with this. Yeah, amazing. It's just amazing what, what he does in his free time. <laughs> yeah. Here's one for Alan. ZFS is mysteriously eating my cpu by brandon gregg yeah so this uh bug i think was specific to zfs on linux and it's from 2017 but brandon just got around to writing about it now so uh don't worry this isn't still happening today but it's an interesting story uh and it's interesting to see how he investigated it so it's worth covering uh but zfs isn't actually eating all your cpu still don't worry no it's not anymore so uh Brennan goes on, uh, a microservice team asked me to help uh, with a mysterious issue they were having. They claimed that the ZFS file system was consuming more than 30% of their CPU capacity. Uh, I summarized this case uh, in uh, at the conference Kernel Recipes back in 2017. This is an old story, but it's worth resharing here. So problem statement. Uh, the microservice was for metric ingestion and had recently uh, updated their base OS image, their base AMI, after doing so, they claimed that ZFS was now eating 30% of the CPU capacity. My first thought was that they were somehow mistaken. You know, I had worked on ZFS internals at Sun Microsystems, and unless it was badly misconfigured, there's no way that ZFS would consume that much CPU. I had been uh, surprised many times by unexpected performance issues, so I thought I should check their instance anyway. At the very least, I could show that I took it seriously enough to check it myself. I should also be able to identify what is really stealing all the CPU. So, uh... Monitoring. So I started with the cloud-wide monitoring tool Atlas to check the high-level CPU metrics. These include a breakdown of CPU time into percentages of user and sys. I was surprised to find a whopping 38% of CPU time was in the sys category, which is highly unusual for cloud workloads at Netflix because it's all user space code. That supported the claim that ZFS was eating their CPU. But how? Surely there's some other kernel activity and it's not ZFS. So next step, I usually SSH to instances for deeper analysis where I can use MPStat or whatever to uh, confirm the user sys breakdown. And perf, 
uh, to begin profiling the on-CPU kernel code paths. But since Netflix has tools, uh, previously Vector and now Flame Commander, to allow us to easily fetch flame graphs from our cloud deployment UI, I thought I'd jump uh, to the chase. Just for illustration, this shows the Vector UI and the typical cloud flame graph. So it's got a flame graph here that's actually colorized based on the type of application rather than the normal uh, heat map type thing. Mm -hmm. So you can see the kernel CPU time is pretty obvious, shown as two orange towers on the left and the right. The other colors, uh, you know, yellow is for C++ programs, red is user level code, and the green is Java. Zooming in on the left kernel tower, we see that the arc reclaim thread uh, is using up a lot of CPU. I worked on this code back at Sun, so it really was ZFS that was a problem. They were right. Uh, the ZFS uh, adaptive replacement cache is the main memory cache for the file system. The arc reclaim thread runs the arc adjust function to evict memory from the cache to keep it from growing too large and to maintain a threshold of free memory that applications can quickly use without having to wait for the arc to shrink. It does this periodically or when woken up by low memory conditions. In the past, I've seen the arc reclaim thread eat too much CPU when tiny file system records were used. So setting the record size to something like 512 bytes uh, was creating millions of tiny buffers. But, they, uh, but there was basically a misconfiguration. In this case, the default size of 128 kilobytes was in use, and you know people shouldn't tune it below 8 kilobytes. But uh, the right kernel tower was entering the SPL KMEM cache reap now, uh, which tries to shrink the size of the system uh, memory cache, which is another ZFS memory freeing function. I imagine it was related to the left tower because uh, they were contending on the same lock or something. But first, why is ZFS in use? So uh, looking at the configuration of the system, there was only uh, one use of ZFS so far at Netflix that I knew of. A new uh, infrastructure project was using ZFS for containers. This led me to a theory. They were quickly churning through containers that would also be churning through ZFS file systems, and this would mean that many old pages needed to be cleaned out of the cache or something. Ah, that makes sense. So I told them my theory, confident I was on the right path, but they replied, we aren't using containers. Okay then, how are you using ZFS? And I uh, didn't expect the answer to be, we aren't using ZFS. Aye. What? <laughs> yes, you are. I can see arc reclaim thread in the flame graph. It doesn't run for fun. It's only on CPU because it's evicting pages from the ZFS arc. If you aren't using ZFS, there are no pages in the arc, and so it shouldn't be running. They were confident that they uh, weren't using ZFS at all. And the flame graph defied logic. I needed to prove, that, uh, prove to them that they were indeed using ZFS somehow and figure out why. I should be able to debug this using nothing more than CD and LS. <laughs> CD to the file system and LS to see what's in there. The file names uh, should be a big clue to what it's being used for. First, I need to find out where the ZFS file system is mounted. So I do df-h mount ZFS list. This shows nothing. No ZFS file systems are currently mounted. I tried another instance and saw the same thing. Huh? Ah, but containers may have been created previously and since destroyed, hence no remaining file systems now. How can I tell if ZFS has ever been loaded? So he pulls up the arc stats. All zero. Unbelievable, all the counters are zero. ZFS really wasn't in use, ever. But at the same time, it was eating over 30% of the CPU capacity. What? <laughs> uh, the customer had been right all along. ZFS was straight up eating their CPU and for absolutely no reason. 
how can a file system that's not in use at all consume 38% of your CPU? I've never seen this before. This was a mystery. <laughs> so then a bit of code analysis. I took a closer look at the flame graph and the paths uh, involved in it and saw that the CPU code path led to the function get random bytes and extract entropy. Uh, these were new to me. Browsing the source code and change history, I found the culprit. ZFS contains a list of cache buffers for different memory types. There's a performance feature called multi-list uh, that's been added that splits the arc lists up into one per CPU to reduce lock contention on multi-CPU systems. Uh, sounds good, and as that should improve performance. But what happened when you want to evict some memory? You need to pick one of those CPU lists to work on. Which one? You could go through them in round-robin fashion, but the developer thought it better to just pick one at random. So they were calling this get random bytes uh, to randomly pick which multi-list to go uh, evict from. But uh, on the Linux port, it was using cryptographically here random that was expensive. The kicker was that ZFS wasn't even in use. The arc was detecting low system memory and then adjusting its size accordingly, even though it was already zero. At which point it discovered that it was zero size already and didn't need to do anything. But this was after it randomly selected one of those empty lists to go evict from uh, using a very CPU expensive random number generator. So Brennan filed an issue with the ZFS on Linux project. Uh, I believe the first fix was uh, just to have arc reclaim thread exit early if ZFS wasn't in use or, you know, the, the arc was already as small as it was going to be so that it wouldn't have to do that uh, list selection. The arc has since had many changes and I haven't heard of this issue cropping up again. Hmm. I like this. It's, it's always like a murder mystery and you kind of get more questions as you go deeper and then suddenly you find why it's happening this way. And yeah, then everything becomes clear. Yeah. And you, it's, you know, one of the biggest lessons of debugging is, you know, it's okay to have a hunch or whatever, but don't get too attached to it because ZFS wasn't in use. How is it? It can't be ZFS. <laughs> and what? You're not using ZFS. Then how is it ZFS? It's not a shame to use ZFS, ZFS, by the way, but... <laughs> In yeah. this case, <laughs> it helped to find why it was the way it was. Okay, so this is fixed, as we mentioned. And so... Uh, Back in 2017. Yeah, so this is long gone. And never applied to FreeBSD because the getting some random bytes to pick a list is not as expensive on uh, FreeBSD because our random number generator is different. Okay. Uh, since we're talking about uh, C uh, CPU analysis or performance measuring in general, we have also news from OpenBSD. They got speed boosts on their trace route. Uh, Florian Opser has committed a significant speed boost for trace routes. Here's the uh, commit message. Make trace route faster by sending probes and doing DNS async. Traditional trace route would send one probe and then wait for up to five seconds for a reply then send the next probe on a lossy link that eventually ends in a black hole. This would take about 15 minutes and people would hit Control-C in anger or frustration. Uh, this rewrites the Traceroute engine to use libevent and ASR's async DNS interface. Probes are now sent every 30 milliseconds or as soon as we get an answer back. With that, we got the 15 minute worst case down to about 10 seconds. That's bearable, I would say. A minor adjustment that is possible with this is to delay printing a line until we get to a line with answers. This has two effects. First, if there are intermediate hops that don't answer, output pauses for a bit so we keep the visual cue of something might be wrong here. 
The second, if there is a black hole at the end, we don't print out many star star stars lines and thus crawling the interesting bits out of the terminal. Uh, we collapse those lines and just print 64 dash or star 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 at the end. Unfortunately, the dash C option to send UDP probes to a fixed port had to go for now, but we should be able to add it back. Once you've seen, <laughs> here's a quote from Theodore Rudd, uh, okaying this, once you have seen the new one, you can't go back to the old one. So I'm enthusiastic about this change. And uh, Bob Beck is <laughs> quoting, I'm very distressed that Florian went to bed without committing it. <laughs> uh, cool. And uh, undoubtedly at the last uh, sentence writes, uh, Florian tooted links to recordings uh, showing the old and new behaviors with an earlier version of this work. See, there's always improvement, even in standard utilities that's been around for a while, Traceroute and others. So we're never finished. Yeah, you know, I've, I've used MTR a lot partly to solve this problem, partly because, you know, I want to keep doing the pings and watch how the trace route changes over time. So it's a slightly different uh, problem space. But in general, uh, I am very much for these changes. Yeah, people don't want to wait anymore. We have fast networks. We might as well give users the time is, they, they have. Is libevent in FreeBSD's base? In, in base, I'm not sure, but I, at least it is available as a port for sure. Right, but uh, you know, if it's going to be in traceroute, we need it in base, and then uh, I'm sure we can steal their async DNS thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably good to to have on other BSDs as well and the other Unixes <clears throat> while we're at it. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap online backups for the truly paranoid. So head over to tarsnap.com/bsdnow and start doing your backups. It's a pay-as-you-go service, so you put money in and uh, your usage gets deducted, you never get a bill because you have to pay before you use it. Uh, but this means that you never get a surprise bill. If you back up more than you thought, you will just run out of credit and be told, hey, you need to uh, you know, put more money in the machine in order to keep going. But the thing that really makes Tarsnap different is that the client, the client isn't open source, but the source code is available for you to inspect and compile yourself. Uh, so you can see exactly what the code that runs on your computer does and ensure that it's reading the files you tell it, segmenting and deduplicating them to make them smaller, uh, compressing them uh, to make them even smaller, then signing and encrypting it with a key that you have, that Tarsnap, the service, doesn't have, and then sending it up to their servers uh, in the cloud. And this means that uh, nobody in the cloud, uh, whether they be at Tarsnap, at Amazon, or at the government, can read uh, the blocks that you've transmitted up to the cloud. Uh, and it means that if you need to ensure that the data that's in the cloud is not usable by anyone anymore, uh, if you need to destroy it, you can just recycle your personal key, basically throw it away and get a new key. And that will make any data that's backed up using the old key inaccessible. Because with the cloud, you can't trust that just because you asked Amazon to delete it, that it's not still in one of their backups somewhere or something. So destroying your key is the way you can ensure that no one can ever open that archive. It provides the safety factor. Now, at the same time, you have to make sure not to accidentally destroy your key because your key, which you have the only copy of, is the only way to decrypt that data to get it back. So you really need to be careful. A, you don't want to disclose your key to anyone, but B, you need to not lose your key, otherwise you won't be able to restore your backup. Lots of people have uh, backed things up and then not taken enough care with their key and then get the bad news that, well, it turns out by design, no one else can help you uh, if you have an encrypted backup and don't have the key for it. 
it's the entire point is to make it physically impossible for someone else to unlock that backup for you. Anyway, head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD now, sign up and start doing your backups. It will save your bacon. And we have received uh, for this episode and many others uh, feedback and questions to our email address, feedback at bsdnow.tv. And the first one this week is Al with a question or a comment about transatlantic cables. It's short, and I'm not sure if it's truncated or not, but it reads like this. Dear Alan Benedict TJ, JT, in episode 200 of Linux Action News, Chris states that submarines, in all caps, are used to lay transoceanic fiber optic cables. Not usually. That's usually done by a ship just because it's cheaper. Uh, however, countries have used submarines to tap transoceanic uh, fiber and copper uh, cables. <laughs> so, yes, submarines can be used to do things to submarine cables. Talk about uh, man in the middle. It's ship in the middle. <laughs> submarine in the yeah. middle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so while the bulk of transoceanic fiber is not laid by submarines, uh, submarines could be used to repair or interfere with them. It's just typically the telcos aren't going to spend the money on a submarine when they can do it with a ship that's much cheaper and doesn't require the same level of specialized crew and equipment. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine. But yes, I'm sure uh, Chris maybe was confusing the stories he heard of of submarines tapping uh, fiber optic cables with uh, using them to lay them, mostly just because it would be a lot more expensive and no telco is going to spend the money for no reason. That, yeah, that's more in line with the stealthy nature that submarines were <laughs> used for. Um, so, okay, that's good to know. Uh, thanks for that message, and we. Uh, I, I'd be very concerned with the concept of privately owned nuclear submarines. <laughs> that yeah, with crew and everything, and so. By the way, side note: Why aren't there many more submarine movies? Is it because of production costs or no stories? Uh, it depends. Um, there's a recent one on Netflix. Uh, it's French, but there's an English version of it uh. called "The Wolf's Call." It was quite good. Okay. Uh, and I recently started watching a BBC series called Vigil, which is about their nuclear submarines. Oh. Although it's a bit conspiracy theory and so on. Uh, I don't know. I'm only on episode two. But uh, okay. there is that new show. The Americans had a show about a submarine called Last Resort or something, but it was very quickly not really about the submarine and I was not uh, enjoying it as much. Mm. But yes, I, I definitely agree that there should be more submarine movies. Uh, and The Wolf's Call was good, other than there was a few things near the end that were just a bit silly. But uh. Uh, other than that, they actually did a, a pretty good job on making a decent submarine movie. Mm. Yeah, because I, I was like, is there anything after Duel in the Atlantic or, you know, Crimson Tide and Hunt for Red October? Is there anything? Um, <laughs> there's Hunter Killer was recent. Uh-huh. Um, I've not actually seen it. It looked like a typical action movie and just happened to involve a submarine. Uh, so I didn't have high hopes about it, but. Okay, good. So good to know. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a, a YouTube channel called Subbrief, uh, where they talk about the history of submarines, like actual, like this class of submarines and here's where the different ones were built. And this one had an accident and this one crashed into that one. And <laughs> this one is still things like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's done reviews of a couple of the submarine movies as well about what's accurate and what's not as well yeah the science versus the fiction 
Mm. Okay, so <laughs> good to know. Because uh, the guy who hosts the channel used to be a, a, a sonar tech on on American submarines. Yeah, because that's probably uh, interesting for. I, I learned about that channel at VBSDCon from another BSD. Oh, leader. excellent! <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why we also go to BSD conferences <laughs> to talk about other stuff. Uh, we're interested in okay moving back to the feedback uh, Christopher is next with an NVMe uh, topic uh, he writes I've really enjoyed the ZFS file system you're not alone I've listened and read a little about BEADM and BECTL and they're great ideas but they don't do exactly what I want I use NVMe drives for the OS installs on all my machines then I have one server that NFS exports 45 terabytes of ZFS spinning Rust which stores all my data and home directories. These NVMe drives are big and cheap enough I can afford to have multiple OS installs and still have plenty of space. When it comes time to install a new version of FreeBSD I'd like to essentially create a new ZFS file system and install to the new file system from within the old running operating system. If I mount the new file system from within the old running OS, I can configure it and install packages without bringing down the server. Then a single reboot can switch over and I still have the old system for reference to or, or to roll back to. This is a lot like what BADM BCTL does, but uh, if I understand correctly, these setups install over a working snapshot. I was to start with a completely clean system so that viruses or old files that are no longer used and that don't get overwritten by the install will not hang around. I'd appreciate any feedback you have. Can BADM slash BECTL operate in this kind of mode? If you can outline briefly what I might do to achieve this myself, the only system file, the only system file system I might want share across versions is slash temp. Given this is there, uh, given this, uh, is there any really advantage to having things like user or slash var on the other separate file systems that are generally created in a FreeBSD install. Right. So to do the fresh one, uh, basically what you would do is ZFS create pool slash root slash your new name, and then you can use BECTL mount uh, to mount it to a temporary directory, and then you can go and do your install in there. Or you can use BECTL jail or whatever to jump into a jail inside that uh, thing and do all your installing. Um, so yeah, normally what it does is clone a snapshot to take a copy of your current system and let you just upgrade it. But if you want to do a new install, you can use uh, just ZFS create and then BECTL and manually do it. Also, in if you're building FreeBSD from source, in the source tree under tools, tools, I think there's a BE install, which is a shell script that takes care of doing a fresh install uh, and dealing with the packages and all that uh, from uh, a build world type thing so that you know if you're jumping to a newer version of current and you want to make sure you're getting a fresh system um it can handle all of that for you oh cool so that extra that. uh script be install written by will anders uh is in the source tree under tools it might be tools slash tools but anyway there's one in there called be install the sh and it helps uh with uh automating the process of installing a new system in that empty boot environment but for BECTL or whatever, creating it is just set of us create an empty file system that's in that pool slash root um, data set. And then you can just use the BECTL mount or BECTL jail or whatever to get access to that empty file system and fill it with whatever content you want. Uh, for sharing file systems, uh, for example, the, on a default install, you want user home to be persistent uh, and not live in the boot environment so that the files stay. Um, 
And, you know, we, I think we do the same thing with var log and a bunch of other things. And we specifically make var db package fall through into the base so that it will, um, different boot environments can have different packages installed. Uh, and the same reason why user local falls through the base, but you know, sometimes you don't want that. Um, BECTL has some support. I don't know how well tested it is for what, uh, I think I called them deep boot environments. Uh, the concept was if you have multiple versions of different operating systems or different versions of FreeBSD installed, you might want the matching user source data set to stick as part of those uh, boot environments. And so you can actually have sub data sets like child data sets on the boot environments. So pool slash root slash, you know, 12.2 slash user slash source, and that will be mounted uh, so that user source is always the one that matches the kernel you're running rather than having one user source that's always the newest and won't necessarily match what you're doing, uh, which can be really helpful on a test machine where you want to test, you know, ports across different versions. You can keep rebooting between the different versions and always have the right user source uh, mounted. Oh, yes, that would be great. Great solution. Yeah, I wouldn't know that this is possible, but great. Good to know. Uh, and so next is Johnny K with a question about Vivaldi, not the composer. The... <laughs> Here we go. Uh, hi, guys. This is for Jim from the episode 412. Oh, yes, we couldn't answer that. And we referred it to you. And here we go. Uh, I'm not familiar with KDE, but X is X. You can set the default browser using XDD, again, XDG-Utils app called XDG-Settings in FreeBSD. And he provided instructions, uh, get Vivaldi browser on your FreeBSD machine, the easy way, uh, with a couple of, uh, with the do as, and then get, yep. and then get you clone. see running XCG just settings, get default web browser, and it'll tell you what your current one is. And then you can XCG settings, set default web browser to the dot desktop file of, uh, the tool you want to be your default web browser. Yeah. It's all in there. Just click on the uh, show and this question, you will have the instructions right there with comments. Thank you for that. Uh, he had to use this method since uh, I use a tiling window manager called AwesomeWM. However, I did this about uh, KDE and he provides a separate link. Uh, anyway, I hope this helps Jim and others. Yeah, it helps us as well because we learned how to do this now. Thank you. As always, I really enjoyed this episode or the episode. Great. Thank you, Johnny. Excellent. If we can't answer it, someone else is out there listening and <laughs> knowing hopefully something better. And then they write us and we link to people in the show. Great. Thank you for that. And that uh, brings us to the end of this episode. We uh, will be back next week with another episode and uh, with fresh content of the BSDs and uh, Unix space as well. So stay tuned for that. Mm -hmm.